My strategy, our strategy for this church is to set down roots somewhere and establish a work, a solid, biblically-based, gospel-centered, discipleship-oriented, theologically clear church. That will, that will exist even after we're gone set down roots for even the next generation. So I see you all out here and me and myself part of a first generation which, Lord willing, will set the foundations for a work which lasts beyond us. That is the vision, that this church would be written for a a new generation even, and to set down roots in an area which is increasingly secularized and to be a gospel outpost for this area in the Hudson Valley. With that being said, um, I would like to invite those of you who are not currently members of this church to become communicant members of, of this church. And we are, we are a church that is made up of its members. And in order to invite you to, to that membership, I want to talk about the central ecclesiological convictions that we have. Now, I, I don't want to talk about every conviction that we've ever had. I want to talk about those convictions that directly pertain to membership and church-related issues so that you can see what we're about and where we're going. And I would like, having explained that, to extend a hand Uh, and offer of membership. So I'm going to preach, I'm starting a new series today called An Invitation to Membership, and where I'm just going to tell you some of the central church-related convictions that we have. Um, So what's coming up then is today I want to talk about the functional centrality of the gospel. Next week I would like to talk about the fact that we prioritize the word and, and sound doctrine that's derived from it. We will talk about the centrality of prayer as well. We will talk about the fact that we have a Baptistic ecclesiology, that we believe in membership and church discipline, that we believe in elders and congregationalism, and that we believe that God does extraordinary things through the ordinary means of grace. That is where we're going in this series. So today, I would like to talk about what unites us. So when you go, for example, you go to a football game. Why is everyone there? What's everyone cheering for? Why did they pay money? What, what brings them in the door? And maybe there are peripheral things. Maybe they want to just hang out with their friends and have a good time. Um, uh, maybe it's, it's the food at the stadium, but really they're there for one thing, and that's the team, and in hopes that the team wins. So there's a central organizing component to why these people gathered at this place at this time. What is our central organizing principle? And that's going to be our first, the first thing we start out with in our invitation to membership. The gospel is our church's organizing principle. That must be the place that we start. And you might say, well, that's kind of obvious. 
Pastor. You know, obviously the gospel is the central organizing principle, but I think that needs to be made explicit because while many churches give lip service to that, they say, yeah, the, 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 the gospel is functionally central, obviously, but what they're doing is actually in practice, it is a secondary issue. It becomes functionally secondary in the way that they do church. Other things can take uh, priority. And uh, activities or ideologies or even good works can actually become primary where the gospel takes a back seat. So to get started, I want to talk about how the gospel is functionally prioritized in our church and must be functionally prioritized in our church. When I say the gospel, I mean the preaching of Jesus Christ, that God has acted through Christ. The gospel is fundamentally a message about God's saving activity through Jesus Christ. There is a provision through for forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross, and there is a promise that those who are in Christ are a new creation now, that they are forgiven of their sins in the past, and that eternal life is to come in, in glory with the rest of the saints and, most importantly, with God in eternity. That's one tenet when I say the gospel. Number two, when I say the gospel, I mean a call to repentance and faith. What the gospel implies is a call, a genuine call to reorient your life around Christ and his kingdom. Secondly, when I say gospel, and relatedly, I mean discipleship. I mean Christ-likeness. Because the Great Commission, as I've quoted probably every Sunday for the past month or so, is go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So I want to say with confidence right now that what we are doing this church, in this church is not something other than the Great Commission. It is the fulfillment of the Great Commission itself. We are teaching to observe all that Christ has commanded us. This means an articulation of our worldview. This means what we should do as disciples of Christ and what we should let go and repent of and eschew as disciples of Christ. This is a Great Commission project. So what I want to do then is I want to read about how the New Covenant, the first New Covenant church was established. How did the church begin and what were the fundamental structuring principles of the New Covenant church? So where would one go for that? Acts chapter 2. Thank you, Gary. You're absolutely right. New covenant means new promise. The Old Testament was the old promise. Those who live by the law, those who do the law, will live by them. The new covenant is a promise of forgiveness of sins and the life of God in the soul of man through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. 
And that anyone can enter into that new covenant, not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 2, as I turn there with you, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has just come as the fulfillment of the new... There is great confusion around around Acts chapter 2, but I'm not going to get into all that confusion. What I want to just make plain is Acts chapter 2 is a specific point in salvation history where the Holy Spirit comes down for the first time. Yes, he may have come upon people in the Old Testament, like David or Samson to do mighty works, but now he comes down and indwells the people of God. And that's totally different than what it was in the Old Covenant. So, the Holy Spirit has dropped in Acts chapter 2. And the disciples began to speak in foreign languages the gospel. And people around, all around, are wondering what is going on because I can hear in my native tongue something about Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross, raising again, eternal life, forgiveness. This message is plain in my language and to your language. So they are speaking various tongues. And all the peoples of the earth who are centered in Jerusalem that time for Pentecost are hearing the gospel message in their native tongue as the Holy Spirit has given the disciples utterance. What then does Peter do while everyone is gathering around looking at this spectacle? What does Peter do? He preaches the gospel. Peter preaches the gospel, starting then at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. You see three things happening here. There's Peter preaching the gospel, people responding to the gospel, and then the gospel unifying the people. Peter preached the gospel, people then responded to that message, and then that message unified the people. That's how you build a church. Let's address those in turn. First, Peter preached the gospel. What does that mean? That Peter preached the gospel. The gospel is not the message that God has a great plan for your life. 
and that it can be your best life now, although there is great joy in Christ, is there not? But the gospel message, if, you're, if we're going to actually be precise about what we mean by gospel, and we need to be precise because there's great confusion about gospel as well, what we mean by the gospel is that Jesus Christ was preached. In verse 22 and 33, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the revelation of the Father, the one who reconciled us to God and now rules as King and Lord. The gospel is also about the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He says in verse 27, quoting the Psalms, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is David speaking. But Peter says, I can say to you with confidence that David both died and he's with us today. But being a prophet and knowing that God swore an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foreknew and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And then Jesus is presented as the risen King and Lord. In verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So, the gospel message is not a vague, ambiguous notion about God and his love and that he likes you and that he wants good things for you and that Jesus kind of fits in there somewhere. The gospel is the message about how God has acted to redeem you and creation through Christ. So I have a sentence that I've, this is non-biblical, but this is kind of, I think is a great structure for understanding the gospel. Uh, this, the sentence that I made up to help people understand the gospel is this. I've probably given you this before. The gospel is the good news that God has acted through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to reconcile man to himself and to make all things new. That's the gospel. It is about God's saving activity through Christ for you and for the world, salvation and the kingdom. So that's the first New Covenant sermon. It's clear and it's firm and it is a statement about God's saving activity through Christ about his sovereign plan, about what Christ, about Christ conquering death through his death, and that just as Scripture said, he had risen from the dead. And this was all according to Scripture. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
So Peter preached the gospel, the gospel and meaning he preached Christ. Secondly, preaching the gospel, he calls for a response. He says in verse 38, um, verse 37, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Repent means to turn. It means turn around. It's an about face. I was facing this direction. Now I'm turning around and facing the complete opposite direction. So this, is, this means a complete reorientation of your life. So when we talk about the gospel, do not be shy about saying that you need to follow Christ. Don't be shy about that because that sounds a little less about grace. That's not true at all. And it's been propounded in too many churches who just, in, in, with all the goodwill as possible, have misunderstood grace. Grace itself is transactional, meaning there is forgiveness, but it is also transformational, meaning that it actually does a work within the person. And so what God requires from you, he's providing to you by giving you grace. He is requiring faith and obedience, a heart that follows God, and he gives you that by grace, which takes concrete form through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If that is complex to you, if you'd like to know more about that, we're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation in Bible study this uh, winter. So look out for that. Um, there's a good, a really good book, I, I appreciate it, called Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. Um, but he says something profound about repentance in that book. He defines repentance. He says, repentance is not adding Jesus to oneself, but rather the conversion of oneself to Jesus. You see the difference? It's not, I'm not adding Jesus to me. I'm completely reorienting my life to him, to him. He is the head. I'm not the head. He's the head, and I get, he is the, the control center of my life now. So a complete or reorientation of beliefs and commitments. John Piper, in one of the most profound sentences outside of the Bible ever spoken, said, God is not the means to achieve the goals you had before you were a Christian. He is the goal. He is the goal now. So, repent. It's a call to repentance. Now, if that sounds hard, a little harsh, I will, I will have you know that repentance is not just something you have to do. It's something you get to do. It's something you get to do. Um, the para Jesus talks about repentance, I think, although he doesn't use the word, repentance is seen clearly in the prodigal son story. The prodigal son goes and decides to leave, leave, a life, leave a life, lead a life of complete debauchery, 
of sin. And finally, one day he says to himself, you know what, I'm going to go to my father. And maybe he'll accept me as a servant. So there's a complete reorientation from living with the pigs and the slop to going to the king. And the prodigal does not know how he will be received. And how he is, how he is received? With open arms, a father running to him, a ring put on his finger, the best feast that could be thrown. That is repentance. It's, it's a gift. You get to repent. You get to go from a life of meaninglessness, purposelessness, and death to life and a kingdom with the king. You get to repent. That's part of the preaching the gospel. Thirdly, Peter announces the promise. In verse 38b, he says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The life of God and the soul of man. That's what a Christian is. The thing that makes a Christian a Christian is not that he or she has said a prayer at some point in the past. It's not that his parents were believers. It's not that he was loosely associated with the church. The thing that makes a Christian a Christian is God within the man or the woman. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And that can that has the Holy Spirit has often affected great and tremendous changes in people's lives and some of you have been benefactors of those changes and have seen it in other people. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, though, works in a more a slow and consistent manner. And he has done that with me. So don't feel bad if your testimony is not amazing. There are people with amazing testimonies. And I think God uses those people as a platform sometimes. So if you have a struggle in life, Perhaps God is bringing you into that struggle so that it might be a testimony. Um, but don't feel bad if you don't have a, an awesome testimony. I remember talking to my friend Joe, who some of you know, Joe Ballone. And uh, he, he was talking to me about how his four, yeah, I was on the streets of Newburgh. I was knocking people out, taking their wallets. I was selling, I was, had guns. And I was like, oh my goodness. And he turns around and, and he's, he's this, this very friendly <laughs> preacher of Jesus Christ. And I, just, I said, Joe, I wish I had your story. This was about six or seven years ago. I wish I had your story, Joe. And Joe said to me, you know what? I wish I had your story that the Holy Spirit kept me, sustained me, and walked with me all the days of my life. So it's not wrong to have a story which isn't amazing and tremendous. I remember Brother Patrick, when he was here, he said, he talked about how when he was at Word of Life, (laughs) uh, they would always have some person who had done something horrible come and talk to the college students about how their life had turned around for Christ. And they, they said, after these meetings, I felt like I, wouldn't, I needed to go murder someone in order to be a genuine Christian. 
so I could have a great testimony. But sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. You don't have to go and commit some atrocity to really be a Christian. Grace is for everyone. It's for those who have lived on the cusp of of danger and death and those of us who have kind of lived just a regular life and worked at a bank for a while. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, so, forgiveness in the Holy Spirit who transforms lives. So, the preaching of the gospel means the preaching of Christ. It means a call for repentance, which is a gift to you. And it, it means that there is, will be a transformed life out of it. And that's why Jesus says things like, you will know them by their fruits. So, Peter preached the gospel. What happened next? People responded to the gospel. It says in verse 41 that they received the word. They received the word. What was his word? They are in need of forgiveness of sin, which God has provided through Christ. And eternal life is to come, and a promise of the Holy Spirit is given to you. They received the word. And what I'm going to talk, I'm going to have a special sermon about how we are baptistic. But if you're maybe confused about this, or even if you disagree with me, um, what did they do? They were baptized. They received his word and they were baptized. This is the normative New Testament response to the gospel. And baptism in its deepest understanding, is identification with Christ. It means just as Christ has gone into the grave, you are going into the water, and just as Christ has raised from the dead over sin and death, or conquering death, rather, you too have been raised to walk in the newness of life with him. It's, it's almost like a marriage vow, but to Christ. And so... They didn't, there was no asking Jesus into your hearts in the New Testament. There was baptism. The way you make a declaration of faith in the New Testament was baptism. And that was a visible, a visible expression of their faith and identity in Christ now. Something about this passage is really interesting. This passage shows you that nobody is beyond the need or beyond, no, nobody is beyond forgiveness. Nobody is too bad for forgiveness, right? Because these people, who were these people that, that Peter's preaching to? Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Now, there's a lot of bad things a person can do. But shouting with a clenched fist, crucify the Son of God, that's, that's pretty bad. So, this shows you that, and, and what was Jesus's Words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Nobody is beyond forgiveness, while it is still today. And you don't need to earn forgiveness. It's those who received the word 
were baptized. Um, the wages of sin is our death, Romans 6.23, but the, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift, so you receive the word. So Peter preached the gospel, people responded to the gospel, and then what happened? Step three is the gospel unified the people. And I, I have preached on this passage maybe three or four times um, since I've been a pastor because it is so foundational for the church. And in verse 41, how did the gospel unify the people? 42, rather. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means the teaching that comes from the apostles, which we have in Scripture. And where did the apostles' teaching come from? Jesus Christ. So we follow the Bible in order to follow Christ. So they devote, and this means where do we get doctrine from? Even though it sounds kind of heady, we get doctrine from looking at the text really carefully and saying this is what it means and then holding that up as a clear testimony of what God has expressed about himself and his will. Now there is room for for difference, and I'm going to get to that next week. But when it comes to the fundamental things, they committed themselves to the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. That means the, the body gathered. To the breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper, which is a visible representation of the gospel, where we take the cup and the bread as a signifier that we have, we have taken Christ into ourself and we proclaim his death until we come and they committed themselves to the prayers, probably the Lord's Prayer, but prayer in general as well. What you have here is a local church in Acts 2.42. You have an identifiable group of people who have responded to Christ in repentance and faith and baptism and reoriented their lives around doctrine from the apostles and Christ to around one another, around the Lord's Supper, and around prayer. That, that is a local church. Now, I want to talk about the fact that they devoted themselves to the fellowship for a minute. First, note the word devoted. They... It doesn't say they loosely associated themselves with one another. It says they devoted themselves to one another. It means to be firm, that word devoted, to endure, to persevere, and to remain faithful. With respect to other persons, it means to persevere together, to endure together to remain faithful together as long as you are together. It means to lock arms with one another. I like that imagery of locking arms together and forming a firm line. That's what Christ envisions for his people, the church. 
a devoted community. How can you do that? First of all, you can treat one another as if you were family. And a lot of you have done that and do do that. But if you haven't, I encourage you to do this, to consider those who are sitting here as family. Um, verse 44 and 46. Listen to this. And those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That, that's a family. And this, this verse almost makes some people uncomfortable. It sounds like almost communism. Like, what's going on here? But there you have it. You have a record of people who treated one another as if they were family, even to the degree of selling their possessions and giving the money to whoever in that community had need. And the, new, the, new, the early church was known for taking care of widows financially. So that's how you can devote yourself to the fellowship. Um, and also on that, and I know I've said this before, but there's, there's a, sometimes some churches, which I disagree with this, think that the church exists for the world. And that's, while it is true that we are to go out into all the world, the church does not exist for the world. I saw one church, and their, one of their fundamental core convictions is that the church exists for people outside the church. Really? The church exists for people outside of the church? That's not the, that's not the vision I'm getting here. And in Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So there's a both and, but the priority is placed on your brother. And that's why Jesus says, um, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. My brothers. Jesus is identifying himself with those who do the will of God. A few chapters earlier, Jesus says, who is my brother, my mother, my sister, those who do the will of God. So the emphasis for the church is Christ, the body of Christ, and then the world. And in that order, Christ, the body of Christ, and the world. How can you devote yourself to this fellowship? How can you put this into practice? You can formally join this church as a member. Church membership, and I'm going to preach on church membership. I have a whole a whole uh, sermon devoted to that idea why we do it. But for now, I just want to say that church membership requires that you covenant with other Christians. It's a promise to represent the church and to submit to the oversight and care of the leaders of the church. It's a promise to not just simply do life together, but... Yes, treat, another, treat one another as if you were family. 
and commit yourself to Christ-likeness in your relations. So, Peter preached the gospel. People responded to that gospel, and the gospel unified the people and formed them into a local church. That is how you build a church. That's how you build a church. So, when... The new covenant, the first new covenant local church was built by preaching Christ. That is why what we shall do in this church, what shall take functional priority in this church is preaching Christ, God's saving activity through him, conversion and repentance and faith to him, and discipleship. And then going out into the world and spreading that message. Now, with that said, the gospel being the organizing principle, it's the, or, it's the thing that organizes a true church. The gospel is the organizing principle. I have a few tenets I'd like to put forward before I close. The first tenet, then, is that the preaching of Christ must be explicit in this church not just by me although I'll be though I am the one preaching but it should be by you too in the sense that that is what your conversation is about with unbelievers as you bring them in to the church in the sense that that is where your affections are drawn and your commitment is drawn to is Christ likeness I mean after all That is what God's plan is for you, that you be conformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8.29. So the preaching of the gospel must be explicit. Uh, Don Carson, in in a book, um, I think it's his commentary on Philippians, makes a comment about the tendency to drift away from gospel centrality of Western churches. And he writes... In a fair bit of Western evangelicalism, there is a worrying tendency to focus, uh, focus on the periphery. Dr. Hebert labored for years in India before returning to the United States to teach. And he springs from the Mennonite stock and he analyzes his heritage as such. One generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social economic, and political entailments to the gospel. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel, and the entailments became everything. Now, do you see the subtle shift? There's nothing wrong with social, political, and economic concerns. But one generation believed the gospel and said there are other things that we can talk about. We also hold to certain social, economic, and political entailments based on our belief in the gospel. The next generation simply assumed the entailments because that first generation did not make the gospel explicit and or assumed the gospel and they held to the entailments. The next generation, the entailments, the social the economic, the political, i.e. the Methodist Church, the Episcopalian Church, that is all they're about now. 
And the gospel has taken a back seat to the point that it's denied. So we must be very explicit, not just me in preaching, but even in our conversation, in our commitments. We must be very explicit about the gospel. It must be front and center. It's about conversion and discipleship to Christ. And so that's important. We must be explicit. Number two, second tenant, is we must not just give lip service to the gospel, but the gospel have, must have functional, functional centrality among us. So Don Carson, in that same comment, continues. He says, we must ask one another, what is the Christian faith? What is in the Christian faith that excites you? What consumes your time? What turns you on? Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another. Abortion, homeschooling, women's ordination for or against, economic justice, a certain style of worship, a defense of a particular Bible version or doctrine, and much more. The list varies from country to country, but not few countries have a full agenda of urgent but not but not a few countries have a full agenda of urgent peripheral demands not for a moment am i suggesting that we should um, not thin out not thin about such think about such matters or put some weight behind some of them but when such matters devour most of our time and our passion each of us must ask in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? That's very important because sometimes the secondary issues become primary. So while we must be explicit about preaching the gospel, we must also make sure that the gospel has functional priority in what we do as a church now and in the future as well. Because this sermon series, this sermon is going to be over in five minutes. And then I'll have said it. But we, can't, we cannot forget to make the gospel, the preaching of Christ, discipleship to him, functionally prioritized all the time. So I remember there was a, um, a guy who had been going to my old church and he wanted to get a soup kitchen together and there are people out there that want to get a soup kitchen together i said great but we got to make sure that we preach the gospel to them we've got to make sure we give them the gospel every time and he said well i don't want to do that because that might that might send them away from the soup kitchen i said to him you know i am not interested in sending people to hell on full stomachs I'm interested in preaching Christ and the gospel. So it is a good thing to give food to the poor and the homeless. But if you leave out the preaching of Christ, you're just getting them fattened up for the day of slaughter. And I, what I, from what I understand, there's a lot of food being handed out in the, in the, in the city of Newburgh. 
You can get you can get like 10 meals a day from the different churches, but from what I understand, those churches receive money from the government and they're not allowed to talk about the gospel because they're getting government funds for their soup kitchens. I would say to hell with that kind of ministry. So, preaching and devotion and discipleship to Christ must never take a backseat to any good endeavor. That's when the tail begins to wag the dog and you, you have some strange, strange community doing nice things for people but not believing anything. We were talking with a guy I was playing basketball with and uh, you know he was talking about the great things his church was doing. And I, listen, I want to get my hands in on good things too. But he was talking about the great things his church was doing. You know, they had built a house for somebody or something. And I said, "That's great." And did you? I basically said, "Did you? Were you able to get them to church and share the gospel?" He says, "Well, no, nah, we're not really evangelical. <laughs> I, I just don't get it. It almost becomes." at that point, an exercise in trying to justify yourself. Because I'm doing something good out there. But it's not for you and for your morale. And it's not a, it, it, it is for Christ and the salvation of souls, if you're going to do something like that. And you can use things as a platform for the gospel. But the platform should lift up Christ. And some people have Christ lifting up the platform, which is very odd. Now, thirdly, third tenant is we need to be aware of ideologies which compete with the gospel. Today, we've got a lot of problems in our country. So we've got COVID and vaccines. We've got politics and critical race theory. And I'm not saying that those issues are unimportant. I am saying that Satan can use those things so that they actually become the issue in our hearts. And then the gospel takes a back seat. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, warned about this because if you haven't read Screwtape Letters, I suggest it. It's a book about a chief demon giving advice to a demon who's working on this guy, trying to get him to fall, this Christian. And the chief's demon's um, advice to this underling demon is this, which sounds eerily similar to us today. He says, Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then... It is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which this one is the present, are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. Any small group bound together by some interest which other men dislike tends to develop inside itself a hothouse of mutual admiration and towards the outer world, a great deal of pride and hatred, which is entertained without shame because the cause is its sponsor. 
and it is thought to be impersonal. I think that is a withering critique of what has happened in many churches today. I told you about the banner in Georgia that I saw. I think it was in Georgia or Alabama, which had the words, unto us a son is given with Romans 8.17, joint heirs with him right under that and a picture of Donald Trump up there. That is idolatry and syncretism in the finest form. And it's not just conservatives who are doing that. It's the liberal-leaning people too. And they have made everything. They have turned Jesus into... They've turned Jesus into a communist or something. A, they've turned Jesus into a woman with a nightgown with two, hovering three inches off the air with a peace sign trembling with his hair flowing in the wind and he never would say anything harsh. Forgetting the Jesus who went into the temple and turned over tables. Now, I pick a lot on conservatism from the pulpit because I'm a conservative. And I know a lot of you are conservatives. Um, and like I said, I've preached with a gun in my back pocket, so you can't, you can't call me soft. But, um, but we're not going to confuse those things with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And... If you are liberal-leaning, yeah, I want to have conversations with you about that. I want to try to straighten you out about some things. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, even, even, even if I think there's something massively wrong with your head, I think, now I think, I know that you are my brother in Christ if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved and you are my brother. And we are moving together in this. You with me? Don't tell me to constantly preach on issues. Because there's always going to be another issue. And two years is going to be the election's going to come up. And there's going to be another issue. And there's going to be vaccines, and there's going to be race issues, and another black man was killed by a police officer, and, and you know, and white people are bad because they've... I'm, I'm not going to preach on issues constantly, like an, like an anxious preacher trying to cover everything that has ever happened in the culture. I'm here to talk about Christ and to get you to follow him. All right, last tenet is this. We must never seek to dress the church up in worldly camouflage. I am a hunter, and it's, it, is, it is the rut. So I'm expecting next week, this is like the money time. This, so I'm expecting to come back next week and tell you that I got that eight-point buck that I was watching 80 yards away. But uh, <laughs> murder... <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> we'll have a church a church yeah. um, so, uh, so I wear camouflage and why do I do that why do I wear camouflage 
Well, I dress up in camouflage. I even, you've heard me say this before, I put some deer urine on my boot. I, you know, I'm all, I look like a tree and I smell like a deer. Why do I do that? It is so that I fit in with my surroundings so that the deer won't notice me. The church should never do that. The church should never do that. And there have been churches who don't want to put the gospel, the offense of the gospel front and center. And so it becomes attractional or pragmatic. And maybe it's about the music and maybe it's about the fun. And listen, I love church softball, but a lot of times it becomes about the church softball, the activities. And and it's almost like a six flags over Jesus, one guy said. But I, I think it's true, the maxim, that old maxim, what you win people with is what you'll win people to. And if you win people with fun and you know, an uplifting talk, and then you're going to win people to that. And you're not going to create disciples. They'll just remain, maybe they'll remain enemies of God and have sat in the church for 20 years. So, that's the four tenets that I want to offer you. We must be explicit about the gospel, explicit about the preaching of the gospel. We must give the gospel functional centrality. We're not just about good works. We want to do good works. But the gospel is functionally centered because the purpose of good works, according to Jesus, is that they would glorify God. Third, we must be aware of ideologies which compete with the gospel. This goes for conservatives and liberals. Number four, we must never seek to dress up the church with worldly camouflage. That's what our church is starting with, and that's what we're about. That's a fundamental, central conviction of this church, that we are organized by the gospel. The gospel is the organizing principle of our congregation. This means preaching, responding to the gospel, unifying the the people around doctrine, worship, the Lord's Supper, one another, and prayer. And that's what we're about. Amen. I would love to preach my next sermon now, but I know it's been a long time, so I'll save it for next week. Um, when we'll talk about the priority of the word and doctrine. Let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and dominion now, before all time and forevermore. Amen and amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.